It's Friday, October 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There are so many fast-moving developments in the Trump, Ukraine, and whistleblower saga that it is hard to keep track of it all. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us to break down what we know. Trump openly said China should investigate the Bidens, how Vice President Mike Pence has been involved, and the former special envoy for Ukraine is also testifying about what he knows. Next, part of the whistleblower complaint was that the transcript of President Trump's call with the Ukrainian president was placed in a special computer system reserved for the most sensitive national security secrets. While not illegal, it was characterized as highly unusual. Daniel Lippman, reporter at Politico, joins us for why the White House ordered this system upgraded to prevent leaks. Finally, for all those wanting to get into the TV business, beware. Right now, story producers for reality TV, those who craft the narrative of your favorite reality TV shows, are facing decreasing wages and tougher working conditions. Tightening budgets are leading these story producers to take on more work for the same pay. Katie Kilkenny, associate editor at The Hollywood Reporter, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. It's a very simple answer. And by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Biden. Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thanks for having me on. The scandal around the president and Ukraine and the whistleblower complaint has reached this point where every single day there's just a ton of different developments. Sometimes it seems like they're all separate topics, but (laughs) they're all kind of related. Um, The latest that we have is the president openly urged Ukraine now and also China to investigate the Bidens. Brett, tell us a little bit about that. This morning, the president sort of added a lot more fuel to the fire. Basically, he was asked specifically what it is that he hoped the Ukrainian president would do about the Bidens when he raised them in a phone call in July. And the president responded by saying not only does he think Ukraine should be investigating the Bidens, but that China should also be looking into the Bidens. So he publicly urged two foreign governments to investigate a domestic political rival. So that's really just kind of heap additional kindling onto this fire. I know the president feels like he did nothing wrong, but now putting it out there in the open, I'm sure people in the White House and even Republicans in the House and Senate are probably shaking their heads a little bit. It's like, you know, now you're just publicly out there saying it. And that's the center of the problem. I, I don't know if the president doesn't necessarily understand what the actual criticism is, but he's going full force now and putting it out there in the public. He's been very adamant that there was nothing wrong with his phone call with the Ukrainian president in July when he first raised this. He's called the call perfect. He said there was no quid pro quo that he talked about. And Republicans have been happy to defend that and say there was no explicit demands made in the call and the call was not an issue. But the president kind of makes it difficult for his allies when he openly and publicly 
says what Democrats are accusing him of doing, which is requesting that a foreign government aid him in the 2020 election by looking into one of his opponents. So it's going to be a little more difficult for Republicans to defend that unless, as we saw with Vice President Pence today, they just go ahead and back him up on that. And Vice President Pence told reporters that he agrees that it's worth looking into the Bidens. So it could be more difficult for Republicans to back him up on this, or maybe they just go ahead and dive in headfirst and throw their support behind these calls for an investigation. Vice President Mike Pence is another wrinkle in this whole story. The Washington Post had a report that basically said that President Trump repeatedly involved the vice president in in his efforts to put pressure on the leader of Ukraine, including after the July 25th call that's at the center of this, where Mike Pence went to the Ukrainian president and told him, hey, we're going to withhold aid until you do more to fight corruption. So the vice president has been... He's, he's made a concerted effort to kind of stay away from a lot of these controversies that have engulfed the Trump administration. But on this one, President Trump seems to kind of be dragging him in. So you mentioned the Washington Post report, and that was one aspect of him getting dragged in. Last week at the United Nations, we saw President Trump essentially encourage reporters to try and get the transcripts of Vice President Pence's calls with the Ukrainian president because he asserted that they would show that there was no wrongdoing. So, you know, willingly or not, Vice President Pence is kind of being tied into this scandal in a much more direct way than I'm sure he anticipated. Mike Pence was not on that phone call on July 25th, but reports say that Pence's top advisor was on that call. And if he was taking notes, then that would have been put in a memo to the vice president. So either the vice president didn't read it or he read it and didn't think anything of it. So just more questions surrounding that. One of the other things that we learned was that the whistleblower went to one of the aides of Representative Adam Schiff before everybody else kind of found out about the complaint. So on that front, Adam Schiff kind of had a vague knowledge of what was going to be in that whistleblower complaint before it came out. And this is something that the president and his Republican backers are really trying to hammer home, is the idea that Adam Schiff knew about this whistleblower complaint before the rest of the public did. And they're sort of portraying it in a bit of a misleading way, suggesting that Adam Schiff knew the whistleblower or knew their complaint and chose not to share it. In reality, you know, his office was informed that this whistleblower had concerns that their complaint was not being taken seriously. And so his office directed the whistleblower to go through the formal process of filing a complaint with the inspector general. So, you know, it certainly it can present a bit of an optics problem, I think, for Adam Schiff. But so it'll be a messaging battle over the significance of that New York Times report. One of the other latest thing was that the former U.S. special envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, went to Capitol Hill to testify. The reports so far are that he was telling Rudy Giuliani, who's another key piece in all this, that he was getting a lot of bad information about Joe Biden and his son. And maybe you shouldn't keep pursuing this. Uh, So that's kind of the other thing that we're hearing from his testimony. So it should be interesting to see Kurt Volker, what comes of his testimony when the day is said and done. He's been in Congress for hours testifying to lawmakers. And one of the things that he's reported to have told them is that he tried to tell Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, that the dirt that he was digging for in Ukraine was not credible and that the people he was hearing that information from could not be trusted necessarily. But Rudy Giuliani, he's been tweeting out screenshots of his conversations with Kurt Volker and others from the State Department the entire day. Rudy Giuliani doesn't seem to be letting up in his narrative that he's pushing. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what Kurt Volker told lawmakers and how it's used essentially to either discredit what Rudy Giuliani has been saying or if you're a Republican to 
sort of knock down uh, the criticisms of what Rudy Giuliani has been doing. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I think all those people who worked on uh, those transcripts and placing them in the system, they're going to be lowering up and they need attorneys to defend themselves after the serious allegation by the whistleblower. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Obviously, the whistleblower complaint against the president is just the top story right now in Washington. We wanted to talk a little bit more about this secret computer system. Part of the allegation from the whistleblower complaint was that the transcript of the call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine was placed into this system where these types of transcripts are not usually placed. It's called the NICE system or the NSC Intelligence Collaboration Environment. Tell us a little bit about this and also this upgrade to the system that the White House ordered. So this is a system that is mostly used for covert actions, putting documents related to that or presidential findings that's very highly classified. It's not meant to be used to put politically embarrassing phone transcripts in it. And that's kind of the allegation that the whistleblower has made. And my story basically revealed that they made it much harder for people to access documents in the system and also they added a feature which would log who saw which documents. And so uh, if they're trying to find leakers, they can figure out exactly, you know, which NSCE staffers and White House staffers saw which documents. And this is really at the center of it. At the time, they were trying to really ferret out who the leakers were. This goes back to transcripts of conversations that the president had with other foreign leaders and they went into a heightened sense of trying to find out who the people were leaking. And that's why they made these changes to the system. And that's why they started putting some of these transcripts into the system so that more people would not have access to it. Yeah, this is a concerted effort to try to clamp down on access because those transcripts with the Mexican and Australian leaders was very embarrassing to the president and those leaders who shortly thereafter kind of left office with their tails between their legs because of all of this. They also wanted to protect those Russian phone transcripts and the Saudi MBS transcripts. I talked to one former Trump NSC official, and he said that there were things that would be damaging to national pride if such a thing got revealed based on those transcripts with Vladimir Putin. I know that the Democrats are trying to find out everything they can about what was going on as part of their impeachment inquiry. But even these transcripts, while a lot of people have said it's highly unusual, this is not necessarily an illegal act or anything. No, this is something that would be inappropriate. But like you said, the law on this kind of varies. And there's an executive order that President Obama had signed uh, which talks about how overclassification is unnecessary. But these transcripts were classified, and so it's just the allegation that they put these into a system that really they did not belong. And so it's more of a propriety thing. And I think all those people who worked on uh, those transcripts and placing them in the system, they're going to be lowering up, and they need attorneys to defend themselves after the serious allegation by the whistleblower. So who has access to this? I was reading that about 20% of the National Security Council staff members are nice users or people that can access this extra heightened level of this system. So I'm assuming it's nothing but 
National Security Council people that can access this thing. Yeah, and so it used to be before they cracked down on access to these transcripts, hundreds of people in the NSC and the White House, and DOD, State Department, intelligence community, they could all read these transcripts. And so it made it much easier for them to potentially get leaked. So they wanted to kind of clamp down on that. And so within NICE, you know, about 20% of, access, of NSC staffers have access to it. And then an even smaller subset get access to those transcripts. And so it's kind of an unneed-to-know basis. And, you know, if you're working on North Korea, you don't need to know the latest intelligence on the Iranian threat or on the Osama bin Laden raid. And so that doesn't make sense. But the transcripts, it's unclear exactly who had access. And I think House Democrats are working on that part of their inquiry. And the big question still remains, obviously, you know, why did they think that this particular call needed to be put in that system? Obviously, if they're just trying to quiet down any leaks, that could have been possible. Sure. But the president keeps saying, you know, it was a perfect call. There was nothing that was wrong. So why did this call still need to be put in that system? You know, that's the big question at the heart of a lot of this. So uh, that still yet uh, has yet to be seen. Yeah, I think that those NSC staffers and the lawyer, John Eisenberg, who's alleged to have worked on this, I think he likely knew that this would not end well for the president. And so that's why they wanted to put it into this system. Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. As reality television has become a little bit less popular in terms of the ratings, they are really hurting because with these independent production companies no longer having the same sort of profit margins that they used to, they are cutting back on salaries. Joining us now is Katie Kilkenny, associate editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. I always love these stories, these looks into the back end of some of your, maybe your favorite programming we're going to be talking about reality TV, and actually, unfortunately, this is not a very nice story. The story producers in a lot of these cases are facing decreased wages, tougher working conditions. In a sense, these story producers are kind of like the writers for reality TV. This is the genre we're going to be talking about, and it's tough. But one of the quotes in here after working you know, a lot of hours, somebody said there's not enough Adderall to stay awake because they're often working seven days a week. A lot of these things are... Um, I have strict time limits and deadlines to meet, and it's just a, a lot of tough working conditions, but everybody wants to work in the entertainment industry, so I like these looks into how things really operate. Tell us a little bit about this, Katie. So we don't often think of reality TV having writers, but there are these people behind the scenes called story producers, and they can go under several different titles, but that's the most frequent title, it's story producer who really craft the narrative of these shows. And these story producers do that through a mix of writing and editing. They're very skilled workers. They know a lot of different skills within this industry. But uh, they are also a particularly vulnerable population in reality TV because given that they are sort of straddling the editors and writers categories, they don't have a union like most workers in entertainment do. So they're putting in really long hours to watch all of the footage, or at least most of the footage, in order to craft a story. Sometimes they're producing on set. And as reality television has become a little bit less popular in terms of the ratings, they are really hurting because with these independent production companies no longer having the same sort of profit margins that they used to, they are cutting back on salaries. And another method of budget cutting is just making staffs a bit smaller. So they're working with fewer people, 
they're having to put in more hours and deadlines are always really tight. Tell us a little bit about the decline of reality TV and how that's affecting this. Back in its heyday, I think there was six reality shows in the top 10 shows at the time. Now there aren't any at all, I think. So, you know, in the mid aughts, the early aughts, the late aughts, the kind of heyday of Survivor and American Idol, reality shows used to be like appointment television. Like basically you could go into your office and odds are that a bunch of other people in that office watched the finale of American Idol last night. But with the fragmentation of viewers onto streaming platforms, as well as traditional TV and these sort of digital platforms like YouTube and Snapchat and even Tinder is now coming out with their own shows, we're seeing that there aren't these big, big ratings hits in reality TV that there used to be. So reality TV is something that is coming onto these streaming platforms. But at the same time, I was hearing from sources as well as from a trade association for producers in the nonfiction space that streamers tend to turn to reality TV for their low budget shows. So they have pretty low budgeted shows that don't offer really great salaries for story producers. So reality TV has taken a hit. And as a result, salaries are going down or staying stagnant despite inflation across the board. I would imagine the obvious oftentimes don't get benefits as well. I mean, maybe in some of the bigger companies that's possible, but you do have to stay with the show for a number of months, maybe. So a lot of these shorter run shows, you might not be able to qualify for benefits, which would also make the conditions a lot worse, too. I talked to a bunch of people who said, I've worked for these bigger companies, and after three months or 90 days or however long, they do offer you benefits, but... You never quite know when your show is going to end, or if you do, it might not be much longer after that. And everybody says the California system for getting health care after you've left a job is really expensive. And so everybody just buys insurance on their own dime, and that takes a big cut out of their paycheck, as you might expect. These story producers, people working in the reality scene, they must have low morale a lot of times. I know there's a lot of call for unionization to help with this. Mm -hmm. What's the kind of thinking behind that? You're right. There is low morale. I think that's one of the reasons why it was, frankly, so easy to find people who are willing to talk for this story. Everybody is worried about it. I was hearing people saying that it's a constant conversation at the dinner table with their significant others, that they're often thinking about leaving the industry. And there are a couple recourses that they can pursue. I mean, there have been lawsuits before, say, if a person or several people have documentation of falsified time cards or missed meal penalties or crazy amounts of overtime. But those tend to be a sort of whack-a-mole approach. They're not particularly useful in terms of changing the industry. New York has been able to unionize some of its reality production companies. The Writers Guild of America, so it's the Writers Union for Hollywood, has been able to do that. But that just hasn't happened on the West Coast. And so writers for reality TV, if they're interested, can contact the WGA, which has previously expressed interest in unionizing reality writers, as well as the Editors Guild of America, which has started to realize that reality writers are doing a lot of the editing work that editors are doing as well. And so they're looking to unionize people who are doing some of that editing work on certain shows. So it's really a case-by-case basis, but reality writers are looking at the scenarios. But again, unionization, it's a long and difficult process. It often takes years. So this is not something that's going to be going away anytime soon. Katie Kilkenny, associate editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.